0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Assalamualaikum, and welcome to A Time for Justice. A Time for Justice is a show on the Elevated Places Network, and we would like to welcome you to our show, A Time for Justice. My name is Sister Pamela Muhammad, and I'm an attorney and the host of this show. This show our Time for Justice discusses legal and current events in a roundtable discussion of legal minds. We discuss this country's centuries-long failure to apply, uphold, and enforce the laws and the overall failure of the legal system to give justice and the negative impacts these failures have had on black people and their black families. Ultimately, we want fair dealing. We want justice under the law. All too often, this is not the actions that we see. Our guests tonight will not make those excuses for racist conduct, often seen, which are really just distractions from the truth, which is the path to justice and equal protection. Let's talk about just fair, and equitable solutions which are in the best interest of the people. Let's remove the distractions. So tonight's topic is the juvenile law system's historic and continuing failure to be accountable for the best interests of black youth. And one of the reasons why we we really have to look at this issue uh, about this system, this racist system, and the centuries-long failure, you know, 400, over 400 years failure to be accountable uh, for anything but murdering and genocide. And all too often, the distraction that we're given is how these systems really are working on our behalf and that the failures that we see with our youth, um, such as the educational system as in the special education system we see these high numbers with incarceration oftentimes and we see all these distractions and we're going to talk tonight about how these are really intentional um acts targeted this is a caucasian reality that we have been held under as the honorable minister louis farrakhan uh talked in one lecture we want full and complete freedom, and this is not what we have in in, in this current uh, reality, that we keep asking these legislatures to do right by us, and we keep expecting something to change, and all too often our children are uh, the victims, and as we look at this race to try to Uh, inoculate our children with these shots that are not safe, they're not effective, they're not even needed. So we we know that this targeted system is really moving in on black youth, and we have to raise the alarm. We've got to continue educating our people about what we've seen in the courthouses of America, which will provide evidence beyond a shadow of a doubt that this system, one that we cannot uh, trust. So without further ado, I would like to introduce my guest tonight, our, our guest on A Time for Justice. He's one of our favorite, Um and the reason is, after I read his bio, I will definitely explain more about why he's such a favored black male attorney in today's time, so our brother is Deshaun Muhammad, also known as Brother Deshaun X Peoples. He's been practiced. He's been a practicing attorney since 2001. Over the years, Brother Deshaun has practiced law all over the state of Tennessee on a broad range of cases. He is the former Chancery Court Special Masters for Shelby County, Tennessee. While he has tried many cases, both criminal and civil, he has found that his passion is in cases involving children and families. Brother Deshaun has been an attorney for the Tennessee Department of Children's Services, and since that time, he has represented countless children and families in the court system in cases involving delinquency, child abuse, custody, and all aspects of family law. He is a husband and a father of a toddler. Brother Deshaun is a Chicago native. Uh, He attended undergraduate at Russ College in Mississippi. He attended law school at Drake University, and he is a um, actual practitioner in the law office of Juan T. Williams. And that's in South Haven, I believe, Mississippi, um, or in the Memphis, Tennessee area. So I'll let him tell you more about that. But one of the things that I just really want to just bring to the attention and scream, you know, loud, Brother Deshaun is a very special lawyer because he works with children and he works with families. And a black male, we had a brother on our show last week, and he was another black attorney by the name of Brother Leonard Muhammad. And Brother Leonard Muhammad, as a black male attorney who also is a member of the Nation of Islam, he spoke like a man. You know, you could tell he thought like a man, a wide awake black man at that. And this is what our children and families need in these courts, and he he has the compassion, he has the love, the commitment for our youth and certainly the knowledge and experience. So this is one of the reasons why we really uh feel privileged and honored to have Brother Deshaun on a time for justice this evening. So let me go ahead and open up Brother Deshaun's mic. Brother
2: Deshaun. As-Salaam-Alaikum. Why alaykum, sir.
0: Wow, Lake of I, I
2: so appreciate that beautiful introduction. Yes,
1: sir. Praise be to Allah, and
2: you deserve every
1: word because, again, in these trying times, you know when our our children and families are in crisis, and a black male is is so often needed uh, in these young men's lives, these young women's lives, to look up to and have some someone standing to defend them. You know, I, I can't say enough how important that is. And so, yes, sir, so, you know, as you and I um, were talking, and, again, I want to thank you so very much for taking your time to come on the show tonight, because as you and I were talking, we wanted to talk about accountability. And um, as I kind of alluded to in, in in the introduction, the fact that such egregious harm is done sometimes to black youth, um, in these courts, and it's intentional and it's historical, um, we have to look at the fact that there's no accountability. And, I, you know, just to put it in plain English, it's saying, you know, if you're not accountable, then I can't leave my child with you. You know, if I if I have my child as a babysitter and I'm going to let someone keep my child while I go five minutes away, I need to know that you're accountable for the you know any safety any harm you're going to feed her you know you're going to make sure that she's she's actually taken care of just you know in a way that is is best not um, harm her and I, and I think all too often our people don't realize that hiding behind these smiling faces in some of these court systems, this juvenile law system, especially these people are Not accountable for the harm And, you know, we even talked about Whether or not it's targeted Racist, intentional behavior um, And sometimes, like myself I think it's intentional genocide So, you know, we have to really talk about it And I couldn't think of anybody More uh, astute and knowledgeable Than you to, to bring this message home In these trying times So, yes, sir Yes, sir. So, um, you know, as I said, go ahead. Um, yes, sir.
2: You know, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I think a big chunk of the problem is that we assume that everybody who, who takes on the mantle of doing something with children is doing it out of, out of love, care, and concern. So when we think of juvenile courts, as, as you stated when we were talking, there's often a smiling face on it in that the courts, all the juvenile courts would say that their mission is is to rehabilitate and not to punish. But those are just words and, and it's just not true. And it and it's not borne out in in the the numbers, the statistics and the lives that are affected. And we have to we have to pay attention to this issue. Because so many of our children are being damaged, and we keep saying black, and we're we're talking about our children because the majority of the children in this system, they're black. Right. Right.
1: Right. Yes, sir. I mean, I know you. I saw some stats in 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 a county, I guess, in Tennessee. When you talk about children being taken into custody, in 2000, and I believe this is 19 children taken into custody, uh, you've got 2,184 black children versus 139 white children. In 2020, you're looking at what is that 1,422 black children but 117 mm-hmm. white children taken into custody and being, you know, held in these juvenile detention centers all over the country. It it is, you know, disproportionately our children. So you're you're absolutely right. Yes, sir. So you know, we we brought up the topic. I think you know, screaming in our faces, we could not look past the story about a judge in Rutherford County, Tennessee. And this story came out about how this, this judge, you know, she makes a practice of jailing children, black children, and she has a staggering history, is what the article from the public radio that was uh, published here October the 8th. And, and, you know, these are the type of things that we see. We, we know it, but we want to make sure that our community is, is aware of just how egregious, again, this is. So we've got this judge, Donna Davenport, according to this article. Um, she arrested some girls, four black girls, sixth graders to fourth graders and a third grader, and apparently these children were arrested because there was a YouTube video that showed a five-year-old and a six-year-old uh, I don't know what they were doing, playing around, brush out, who knows, but supposedly the girls were looking and then the next thing you know, you've got these children um being locked up. There's in a in a jail facility that has got forty eight cells, sixty four beds. Um you've got these what is this? The sixth grader gets handcuffed. The fourth grader who has diabetes, she's suffering, watching. I guess eventually she got maybe dragged to. But in this particular county, they were saying that you got 5% of children locked up. That's the state average. But in this particular county, 48% of children are are locked up, 40% um higher you know a 40% versus a 5% average so you know we we seen this you know this came to light or do you know any of the facts on this case brother deshaun i know it's not your county but did you have you heard anything else about rutherford county
2: that's not my county and i mm-hmm. don't know very much specific about the county except for the fact that I can say I've actually been in that detention facility and when they say detention facility, you might think it's a place, you know, specifically designed to hold children and maybe it it holds children but that it would be more child friendly but I can tell you the Rutherford County Juvenile Detention Facility is the most prison-like juvenile detention facility I have ever been in. We're talking about big heavy iron doors with a tiny little glass slit in them and that's all you see from the halls. I mean, it is designed to prepare a child for prison. Mm. It, Yeah. And, and it, yeah. to say that small children are regularly placed in these cells just tells you what what they think of us. Because yeah. my understanding is that this isn't the first time this judge has been in trouble for doing random racist things. This is her standard practice. This isn't just, you know, an isolated incident. The article stated that this was, you know, that she's done this many, many times, locked up people. for. Her. The big thing is what she locked them up for wasn't a crime. So Right, right. And on top of that, she's done this many times. She's been in trouble before, but she's been reelected many times. And she's up for reelection again this summer. The anticipation is that she's going to be reelected. Yeah, yeah. So when we talk yeah, about I mean, a lack of accountability, the fact that someone can do this and then expect that she'll be back in office is is unheard of, but that's what we deal with on a consistent basis. Many of these judges have been in their seats for, for who knows how long because they just keep being reelected. That's true.
1: I, you know, it's quoted uh, in this article. She's saying, I've locked up one seven-year-old in 13 years, And she said it broke her heart, of course, but 8- and 9-year-olds and older are very common now. You know, so this thing about um, – and I think the big thing about accountability is that Rutherford County, according to this article, violated the federal law 191 times by keeping kids locked up too long according to a story that was published by the Tennessean. And it talks about, by law, children held for such minor acts as truancy, where to appear before judges within 24 hours and be released no more than a day. But the newspaper interviewed Davenport, who estimated half those violations occurred because a child had cursed her or someone else. And so she says for cursing, she typically sentenced kids to two to ten days in jail. She says, was I in violation? She said, yes, heck yes. But am I going to allow a child to cuss anyone out? Heck no. So, you know, typically, this article says she typically sentenced kids to two to ten days in jail uh, for that type of behavior. And, And remember, this is the same person that, who said that you know eight nine year olds is, is pretty common? It, it's okay, um, and and so we we really wanted to drive home how the lack of accountability is used when handling black children, and again this has been going on for the over four hundred years. There was a study where one uh, jail jailer, someone who worked in a facility. He said when when he was asked why he believed that black youth were overrepresented, well, one person said it's easier to lock up black kids for offenses than white kids um, that they would never be locked up for. He said that black parents don't show up and complain. And the community largely believes that incarceration for minor misbehaviors of black youth is not unusual. Now, I don't know if I believe that. I don't believe, I don't know if I believe everything he's saying, but I do know that we this is a call to action for us as a black community to get past these stereotypes about why our children are being detained and understand that we do have to show up and we do have to encourage our communities to show up and to actually take charge of these children. So they won't be targeted for um, as these two little ch- these little girls, this fourth year fourth, fourth grader and a, what was this a sixth grader? They get arrested at school because supposedly they didn't intervene in, in a in a in a fight that wasn't even a bad fight. But the point is is that that's not even a crime, you know. So this this is something. This is real racism. And it goes back. Now, what gives the court this kind of power, uh, brother, brother Deshawn? And I think question: How the doctrine shapes juvenile law, the doctrine of parents patriae, because that's something that gives these people the power to make decisions about your child. Can you explain some of some of that, or you want me to read this definition uh, that I see?
2: Um, I, I think if you read the definition I can probably add some meat to it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, well so you know, um and and I'm and I'm thinking that I have it, but pretty much the government as parent. I'm just gonna leave it at that. Yeah. Where this describes the power given to juvenile court to exercise the role of parent. So, you know, again, this means that Go
2: ahead. I was going to say, yes, and in addition to that, when we talk about a lack of accountability, we have to remember that oftentimes the juvenile court is the only court with authority to address some of these issues. So okay. you, you, have a, you have a system set up where someone is perceived to be an expert because they're the only one who's empowered to do something, but the party who has that power by 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 law is the same party that that's terrorizing the community, because we need to be honest this is, this is I mean, some of this is terrorizing our community. We're talking about small children being put in handcuffs and led out of court. Yes, sir. But it's only our children. If you look at the numbers in juvenile court, the number of black children in the facility is almost exclusively black children. And so <laughs> we we have to look at that because when when you say they sit in the seat of a parent, they take the the power of the parent away and take over it, so exactly. yes, the state becomes the parent, and as we used to say when I worked for for d c s the state is a terrible parent, terrible parent yes sir
1: and and like you say, the trauma being done to our children. Uh, is described oftentimes as PTSD, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, because to handcuff a fourth grader, you know, a sixth grader, and actually parade them in front of their friends, um, this is, these are leaving marks that uh, really probably never go away. We We had an article here out of Harris County, Texas, and this is the example of just the, the using the authority and terrorizing children in courts, and nobody really knows anything about it. Now, this particular article is about how juveniles um, are represented by attorneys accused of cronyism, and the article is entitled, Everyone Wins But the, but the Kids. And so in this article, it was saying how, you know, so many cases, these lawyers have so many cases that they definitely can't really adequately represent these children, and everybody knows that. And, and this author, this University of McKinney School of law professor said, he said it's a joke. He said it's just a joke. It tells me immediately that you're not really investigating the cases and you're not what do, doing what you need to do. And young clients especially, they just don't know any better. So this is, you know, so children cases are just being pushed through the courts. Nobody's really holding anybody accountable. As we read in this other article, the, just, the federal government, there were violations, over 100 and something violations in this county. But what does that mean? you know if there's a violation and no one to enforce it, nobody to punish, uh these are black children after all. This is how our children are being handled in these in this system, this criminal justice system, and there is no accountability for it. And so again, at the end of this program, we want to talk about having accountability for our own communities, our own families. But we want to make sure that everyone knows what we're seeing because, you know, as as the brother said, Brother Deshaun said, the people that are being paid taxpayers' dollars to look as if they're doing the right job, we see this in the schools, we see this with these teachers, you know, we see this with these counselors, we've heard the stories about you know, the, the black man who wants to graduate and he wants to be a lawyer. I think it was Brother Malcolm's story. And, you know, the teacher, what do they do? Try to stick a pen in his brain, you know. Oh, no, that, that's not a good job for you. That You know, you could never do that. So these are the type of people that are in these systems, and, and we're feeding our children to them. So, um, you know, kind of wanted to go on and say um, – We talked about the evidence. What evidence do we see that judges and police and teachers are punishing youth and and youth of colors um, at a higher rate? Um, And, and again, you know, we've talked about this before. We know about the super predator. Uh, We know about, um, you know, that whole stereotype that was labeled that black youth – are super predators and that they are somehow um, worthy of punishment. Isn't that right, uh, you know, Brother Brother Deshaun? Yes. We,
2: we... yes, ma'am. And oftentimes what I see is when it comes to our children, our children are often not viewed as children. They're talked to mm. and they're often treated as though they're adults. And, and, We have to be our children's advocates because the court system – I've actually had a case where the issue involved a 16-year-old black male, and we were in juvenile court, and the judge kept referring to him as that man. And I had to stop the judge to say, this is a child Mm. because this court, the court treats adults, is supposed to treat adults and juveniles differently the goal for for juvenile court has to be rehabilitation. And and what we're trying to do is hold the court to that standard. One of the things that I was thinking about as you were speaking was um, I have not seen such a study as it relates to our children in juvenile detention, but there were a lot of studies done when the government was taking migrant children and keeping them in detention. And the studies, the the result of the studies was to determine what is the damage of removing a child from their parents and holding them for periods of time in detention. And just about it, you mentioned PTSD, but the studies talked about long-term long term damage long term distrust of of family of their own people and so forth long term changes in the child and in the way the child thinks of things fear mm. i mean when you take a child from from his parents because that's what we're talking about doing when we talk about juvenile court placing a child in detention we, I mean, they leave in handcuffs. They're being taken from their family, being placed in a jail-like facility or, or some other circumstance, but they're being removed from their family. It's traumatic, and it makes changes. And my position is it's preparing them for a life in prison. Yes, sir.
1: Yes, sir. And and as you're speaking, if anyone has a question or a comment, please get into the host queue, press the number one. Um, because as you were talking, Brother Deshaun, we look at some stats out of Los Angeles that, you know, show us that black youth, and this came from the Hayward Burns, I believe, uh, Institute, But and these are 2020 stats. And we're trying to show you that, yes, black youth are the ones who are being targeted in these streets. And, you know, again, 5.1 times more likely to be referred to probation, 7.7 times more likely to have a petition filed in juvenile court, 9.5 times more likely to be declared a ward of the court, 31.3 times more likely to be committed um 1.5 times, and, and then they go on to talk about Latino youth. You know, so Latino youth, they're, you know, definitely almost double the rate of white, 1.5 times more likely to get probation, 1.9 times more likely to have, you know, in juvenile court, and so on and so forth. But the key is is that, again, our children are not committing more, crimes necessarily. They're not more likely to commit crimes, they're just being punished. And, you know, I think wanna jump into one of the big aha moments is that this relates to not only racism but poverty. And we went back with a book entitled Children in the Mist of the Storm, which is a book that chronologizes Oracle, you know, findings with the development of child welfare in America. So we can go back to right after slavery. We can go back really to when the settlers came to the shores of this country. And one of the things they determined was that if poor children are in need of care because of the poverty of their parent, and their parent's poverty is in turn due to whatever, then leaving children with such people – will only spawn another generation of poor people. You know, so, and before you get there, you got to go with this. So the conviction that poverty is the result of one's own inadequacies, you know, and, and and it's tied to that. And so we're looking at people who brought us here, these criminals who victimized us, raped and robbed us and committed all crimes and, you know, stole every ounce of our energy to build their world. But then when we didn't have money, when this is the, the way this country works, then your poverty is your fault and your poverty is reflection on you. And so the fact that we hear this in the 1800s, we hear this today, this, you know, this is the same rhetoric you know, you're poor, you're welfare, it's your fault. And and so this was the same rhetoric. And so now we get this extra one. Brother Deshaun, I know his wife, she was noticing something that was said on the local news to that effect. You know, these these poor children need to be away from these poor parents. And and again, this is something that has always been the case. Um, And the key is, why is that, you know? So we do have a caller, um, and I'm going to take this caller, and then we'll go back, continue in our discussion as well. Yes, ma'am. alaikum
3: Wa alaikum salam ma'am. This is a very timely conversation. I'm so grateful to you, Sister Pamela, and you, Brother Deshaun, for um, being so courageous and bold in bringing this out for the people The situation where our child has been detained and is preparing to go through the um, juvenile injustice system. What can we do? What should I do? What, what are three steps that I can take to help preserve the dignity, the rights of my child? What What can I do if I find myself in this situation?
1: Yes, ma'am and you went out a little at the beginning ma'am uh you know first i like to say all praises are due to allah um for what you said um and you're saying i think that if your child is in been detained in the, in the juvenile system what should you do am, am i correct uh,
3: yes that's what that's, a, that's
1: okay. exactly what i'm saying yes ma'am okay yes ma'am so brother Deshaun, did you want to um give give some input
2: uh, answer that question Yeah, I think the first thing you need to do if your child is caught up in this system is to, the the best advice I ever give is to shut up. Do not, you do not give a statement and don't allow your child to give a statement. And the second step is to look for a lawyer because your child will need representation. They'll often say that, you know, small thing and that, you know, it doesn't necessarily require a lawyer. You can do it yourself. Get a lawyer. Get somebody who's qualified to address the issues and who knows the system. Because
3: what what kind of you obviously don't know the
2: system if your child is being locked up in the first place. So the first step would be to be quiet. The second step is to get an attorney And the third step is get some community members to get involved because a network always helps. It always helps. You can show the court that somebody cares about this child. There's less of a chance that that person will slip through the cracks.
1: Mm -hmm, Great. And I heard the follow, I think her follow-up question was what kind of lawyer uh, should that be? And, um, Brother Deshaun, you, did you want to respond for that as well, please?
2: Uh, my my first answer would be it needs to be a black lawyer. Um, yes, sir. And aside <laughs> from that, it, it should be someone who has experience dealing with juvenile court systems. So right. um, generally that would be family lawyers who, who would deal with it. But just ask the attorney. How much experience do you have dealing with with this court system? Because it is it is not the same as dealing with the adult court system. I've I've dealt with both and the approach in juvenile court can be very different. And you have to know who you're dealing with. Yes, sir.
1: Yes, sir. And and I, I want to say that if anybody has another question or comment, please press the number one to get in the host queue. Um and I wanted to say something, you know, another an, an, another idea that I've sometimes tried to communicate to our families and our parents in the community is that, like you say, the juvenile system is different. So you got to look at the fact that, according to the law in many states, the lawyer's first responsibility is to the child, and really to the child only. And so what that means sometimes is that a parent may be writing the check to hire this attorney and, you know, definitely getting someone who they, they feel confident in. But you've you got to be aware of the nuance that exists with child loss. So, you know, some I think in my cases I've always tried to, um, like Brother Deshaun say, give the child a team. You know, because I think anyone that can add to the likelihood that I can do the best defense for this child by knowing what's going on with the child, I don't want to cut them off. And here I am having a conversation with, you know, an 8-year-old or a 12-year-old or someone who still has a little maturity uh, sometimes that they need. And I think that's one of the places that sometimes our children are trapped, because some of these, um, especially white Caucasian, you know, maybe public defenders here in Harris County, court-appointed lawyers, sometimes they'll cut off the parents completely because they know that if I just have to deal with this child, then perhaps, you know, I might not, you know, that, that's a different level to me, dealing with, um, children and not having the ability to in- include their parents. Um, in their defense, I think, will sometimes make a child vulnerable, uh, very vulnerable. So you better know who you're you're dealing with with these lawyers. And referrals are still some of the best. I'm hearing that the new thing now is that lawyers that look good on the computer and that's the whole thing that you, you know, beginning and end, how you're choosing them. But I think you really need to still look at referring, Um I, you know, definitely... Most, confer- most definitely.
2: Go ahead. <laughs> yes, sir. No, I, I was going to say you are definitely right. In terms of choosing someone, word of mouth means a lot because you can create an ad to make a person look like they've been doing something forever. They may have just started. And the ad can, can say anything. I mean, look mm. at the things that ads have convinced us to buy. And it's the same approach with lawyers. Whereas word of mouth means a lot. Talk to people and try to find out child and who who sought to 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 get a good result. And
1: yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you that point.
2: that's the best approach. <laughs> yeah, yes,
1: and, and you know, I think while we're talking about again the nuances of a juvenile case. A lot of times, too, this need to remain silent and not give um, what we call exculpatory information or, you know, things that will uh, incriminate the child um, is so very important. And so I think parents, you know, two things, of course, like Brother Deshaun said, don't make any statements. Children, you know, tell your children to the best of their ability they never have to make any statements, and you know, if they worst case scenario, just start crying or something. Just you just don't don't buckle under the pressure, because as we were seeing, you know, talking about accountability, you know, they lie to children, and so you know, Illinois just had that overturned case that you can't lie to children during interrogations, trying to get children to confess to things, and you know, by giving them fantasy-based, you know, information are just straight-out lies. But, you know, so the key is is to tell your child when they leave your home, do not talk about personal matters to any adult, and that even includes these principles. I think a lot of times you can still say, I need to talk to my parents first. Can we call my mom? Can we call my dad? You know, the. So talking to your child and making sure, you know, you do these exercises with them, practice sessions with what are you going to say if this happens? You know, like sometimes we'll talk to our children about if you're outside and someone strange that you don't know approaches you, what do you do? So, you know, these are definitely the times that we have to have these type of communications with our children. Um, And so – and then I just wanted to say, I think there was one other thing uh, along those lines, and 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 again, this whole thing about parents, you know, sometimes your child's discipline. Of course, you know, you, many of us, we want our children to be responsible, uh, but oftentimes in the middle of these type of proceedings, if your child is charged with something, you know, that's not the time. A lot of times, to you know. Tell your child, tell them what you did, little Johnny, you know, right in front of everybody. You know what I'm saying? You may want to have a private conversation, get the facts, get a good lawyer, and then proceed. That And that, you know, that's just something that I think is, is important and relevant to children. You know, and I'm just one of those parents, too. I just want to throw that out there. You know, we'd always tell our, our children, don't discuss what goes on in our house, you know, with anybody, you know, you need to, again, tell the child, tell that adult that they need to speak to your parent. Talk to, you know, talk to my parent. I need to speak to them first. So, you know, these are very important uh, messages in in this time. So thank you so much, ma'am, for your questions. And did you have anything else you wanted to say?
3: I just want to say thank you so much for what you're doing. This is powerful. This is impactful. This is necessary and needed because we know that um, our children are under attack and need a vital protection. And I believe that what you and Brother Deshaun are doing is on the front, you you are the vanguard on on the scene right now, and I'm just really grateful for the both of you.
1: Oh, praises are due to Allah, ma'am. Thank you so much, sis. Yes, ma'am. Well, as-salamu alaykum.
3: Walaikum salam.
1: Okay, and then we have our frequent <laughs> caller, Sister Sister Marguerite. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum. Yes,
0: ma'am. <laughs> Walaikum salam. You know, since I, I, this is a wonderful show, and I was going to mention that incident in Tennessee. I'm so glad you all talked about it because uh, it's just heartbreaking. But I remember, you know, I grew up in Mississippi and actually in the Mississippi Delta. And one thing my mother used to always tell us, because we had, you know, I had six brothers and it was just two girls. And my sister and I were always together. And she always told us, never take money from white men. Never take <clears throat> money. And she drilled that into my head so that when there was an occasion where which. Uh, my sister wanted some candy, and I had money, and she did This white man was going to actually give her some money. But I had it drilled in my head. Don't you ever take money from white men. And I snatched her away and, you know, went home. But these are, uh, you know, we need to drill this into our children's heads that these people are not their friends. The school administrators, uh, all these, uh, what do you call them, um, they're where, where they have to report, reporters, You have where they have to report okay. to CPS, you know, those right. first-line reporters, or whatever, these people are not your friends because my son had all his children taken from him based off of what one child said because he was angry at being grounded. So they will okay. take what you say. And use that. And if you don't train your children now, they're still uh, in danger of being victimized by these people who don't mean them any good. And until we press that into these children's heads, these people don't mean you any good. Right. It's impossible for them to to mean it's their nature. You know, when they see black people uh, with a nice car, they, they don't like it. You know they do something about it if they could. they see you with a good job they they would do something about it if they could, so we really have to have to uh take the effort to teach our children to keep their mouth shut around these people. be careful what they say because they will use it twist it. Another point I want to make too about parents. I was on a case with a sister who had her son, her teenage son, taken away. And what the the, the case worker had done before they took the child away, she had come around and been very friendly with her, and the sister let down her guard, and you know, and she told about things she did years ago. You know, she smoked weed or whatever. And when it came time for them to take that boy, they used everything she. Even stuff Hmm. that happened When she was four years old They used it all against her To get custody of that child
2: Yes ma'am So I cannot stress
0: enough Even parents Keep your mouth
1: shut Around these people Yes ma'am Yes ma'am That is such an excellent point Sister Marguerite I'm so glad that you called in With your comments today because I know, you know, this is an area that you've spent a lot of time and you know advocating at, you know, as well as fighting for as well. So, you know, I'm definitely thankful for those comments that you say they don't mean you any good. Yes, ma'am, and that you know, and that's really our 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 topic tonight. We want to give the evidence that a system that fails to hold wrongdoers accountable. You know, these are those cases where they go behind these judges' chambers sometimes, and what they talk about and what they actually do are are different in terms of not giving us justice, and, and they really don't mean us any good because one of the biggest things is that this particular juvenile justice system, these school systems, they don't have the type of accountability for wrongdoers that will punish and deter uh, any kind of wrongdoing. So you have to think that perhaps this is intentional. And um, that was one of the points we wanted to make tonight because when we start talking um, about, and Sister Marguerite, I'm going to go ahead and, um, you know, uh, thank you so much again for calling, and as alaikum yes ma'am because when we start talking about uh, money spent on failed programs now this is another issue you know so much money is spent 5.7 billion dollars spent each year in imprisoning youth they're held even for non-violence and this this was some 2000 i think eight information but you know it can only be more now and you know they're saying that a lot of this money is um the average cost is 240 dollars per day per youth in some of these uh facilities and this is state funded and you when you look at it though you're saying that you all could actually the system could actually spend you know very less money and get uh much more benefit when you talk about therapy and family therapy and, you know, programs that are, keep the children in the homes, and you would get, they say sometimes up to 22% lower recidivism rates. And that that's probably a very mild uh, statistic. Uh, you, you, you see what I'm saying, Brother Deshaun? You know, all this money that's being spent, um, to, to incarcerate or to det- detain is the proper word, you, you know, you, you just have to wonder I, and, and know that. Yes, yeah, sir, go ahead. I,
2: I agree with you wholeheartedly. But while you were talking, I was thinking about your original point, which is that there's a lack of accountability. And I was thinking about the fact that um, back when I used to do criminal law, and I used to do a lot of it, You know, I represented someone who was charged with kidnapping. And the amount of time this man was facing for kidnapping someone, out of time, because it's a very serious felony. But what we're talking about is a judge who knows that, as you stated, it's in violation of the law to take these children and put them in cells For something that's not a crime We're essentially talking about Kidnapping You have a Mm. constitutional right To your freedom So to take that away from someone Is essentially kidnapping If there's no legal right To do so But she's been doing this for years Right And they're doing news reports About it And the biggest question Is whether or not she'll be reelected but nobody's talking about punishing yeah. for this and <laughs> she's the one that we know about because it's in the news so when we talk about yeah. a lack of accountability we need to know we need to realize what we're looking at to take a child who's not committed a crime and put them in a cell right you're essentially talking about holding somebody hostage that's right but in terms of the system, the system itself. You mentioned that you know there was the case in in Illinois, and the new law that says that they can't, that the officers can't lie to children. But so far, Illinois is the only place that has that law. Right. The police have a right to lie to a suspect, and in every other state, but Illinois. There's nothing to stop that from applying to a juvenile. Yep, that's so right. We, when Sister Marguerite says that we're in a, that that they don't mean you any good, it it really is true. When approaching the court system, we can't approach it as though these are our friends. I, I often have clients, parents, who take the approach that, you know. The, And and I'll quote the parents. I'm going to bring you in front of these white folks, and they're going to show you how to behave. But we treat the court system as though it's a disciplinary system for our children. Right. That is so far from reality, because the court has no interest in disciplining our children. You discipline out of love. That does not apply here. Yeah, that's but they right. will abuse our children. Yes, sir.
1: And, and you know, and, and you're so right, this this concept, we're, we're going to keep repeating what Sister Marguerite said, you know, they don't, um, what did she say, they don't have any intention to do right by our children. Uh, because when you look at uh, the history, yesterday's child welfare programs or system, you know, during the beginning of American civilization, how you know, how this country was established, the child welfare was supported by the wealthy. And so that means that it was directed by them and controlled by them because the state was not really into helping the poor. And so I thought that was interesting because is it still controlled by the wealthy? Um, I think the answer would be yes, because we can look at the system of convict leasing, for example, That would be a system that, um, you know, we could see a direct, wealthy convict leasing Um, in the 1890s. You had 18% of all black prisoners were youth. You know, you had convict leasing where they say no convict in the state of Mississippi ever lived beyond seven years. So, again, we see this system being used to make wealthy people wealthy, and I think in today's time, when, when I read that that um, this system is supported by the wealthy, directed by them, and controlled by them, this is how this the system used to be, especially, you think of these non-for-profits. That control the system now. Um, when you talk about youth services, when you talk about really getting in and and supposedly re- rehabilitating, these are these nonprofits who are getting these tremendous um, tremendous funds to to study our youth. You know, I've often said, why is it that you can't help poor people, quote unquote, under this particular system unless you have some kind of non for profit um, and we know some of the biggest ones like the, you know, the big ones, United Way, you know, all of those, the Y. There, you know, some of those types of systems, the Pelchin, you know, the churches, they talked about how the churches, they control the, the rehabilitation or this particular process with youth. Um, and again, is that keeping us from really having the type of access we need to our children? That, you know, that's what I'm looking at, and when I look at the failures, you know, again, we have to look at, well, who has been around the children, and, and we know that um, this is not something new. You know, the the, the chattel slavery, and uh, last week, uh, Brother Deshaun, we, we talked about an article that um, was related to the impact of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, um, and that was a case that occurred in the 1960s where a lawsuit was filed by a prisoner, and that particular lawsuit, so the final call reported, it it actually went far in giving prisoners rights because in the 1870s, the Supreme Court had held, you know, prisoners don't have any rights, period, no uh, bill of rights you know, no rights or religion, you know, you're just, you're like an animal. Um, that, and so, you know, we look again at how this slave system and the failure with the 13th Amendment to really be guaranteed, you know, giving us full freedom, as the minister said, uh, because they do it through mass incarceration. You know, that that's the point. So, again, going back to what Sister Marguerite said, you know, this system does not mean us any good, and now we've got these shots, you know, where they're making this argument, this circular argument about how even though our children, and especially little children, what is that, 5 to 11 or something, they they have such a small infant, infant you can't even say the, the percentage is so small, it's, you know, I think it's not even point zero one or so it's not anything, and they and they end up catching it, and then they don't they're not even going to be too sick if they have it you know if at all, but a but a shot that is actually killing people, and we don't even know what happens with children, and we do know that children are suffering from heart inflammation and and some children have died, but now this is all we hear, you know, our children. Um, they, you know, they want to give these children the shots. And and, and just so that I stay on on point with it, you know, these are some of the mechanisms that we've heard, you know, they they talk about they want to help the children, the best interest interest of the children, where now we see the media, again, I think this is the wealthy kind of manipulating the media. We see them um, talking about how it's, it's so important keeping the children safe, you know this and that. So it, it, it's it's really something that we have to wake up. I think, as, as the sister caller yes. was saying earlier.
2: Yes, yes, yes ma'am. I and this. I think what you said about the shot is really relevant because they're mm-hmm. making mm-hmm. they're making vaccination a necessary part of so many things. I know of one case where in order to be placed on probation an adult has to be has to be vaccinated per the judge's order. I know sure. there are many cases similar to that and if in fact they they and we know they will approve the shot for vaccination of 5 and up, I have no doubt that they will start Vaccinating children when they get into detention facilities, they have not, to my knowledge, that hasn't taken place yet. But so much goes on behind closed doors, and there is so little oversight that we don't know that it's not already going on. But I have no doubt that it will go on. And that's another avenue by which people have access to our children in order to vaccinate them. Yes, sir,
1: and that's why, and you're so right because I know in the child welfare system when children are going into foster care, I believe the ones older than 11 are being subjected to, um, you know, maybe this force force vaccine, and that's why articles like our sister Charlene Muhammad, uh, she wrote an article entitled, Will You Let Your Children Be Guinea Pigs? You know, um she wrote another article about how parents are left in the dark, how D C legislation is trying to permit children as young as eleven to to be vaccinated without their parental consent. I mean it's actually I believe the city council passed this, but there are lawsuits that are fighting against this. But this again is why, you know, we have to make sure our our, our listeners understand that this system, as Sister Marguerite says it doesn't mean us no good. And there is not, there has not been accountability uh, for the 400 and, and over 450 years that we've been here. There's actually been a, a, a direct genocidal plot. Uh, we talked about the critical race theory I know earlier, uh, Brother Deshaun. And so now we have how, you know, they don't want our children to be taught their true history in these schools because they don't want us to be informed about their wicked behavior. And and I just think it's very interesting as we continue to look at the history of black slavery in the juvenile justice system. Mm-hmm. It, it's just so important to me because one of the things, and, again, I would encourage if any of our listeners want to make a have a question or a comment, please get into the host queue. Um You know, I think one of the big issues is how South Carolina laws, and this is going back to this um, convict leasing. South Carolina laws allow black orphans and the children of vagrants or other destitute parents to be forced into apprenticeship with white masters. This was under this mass incarceration slavery renamed. And so, you know, then we, this is where we see the children on the plantations. Many of us have seen these pictures where these children are working and, and they're, you know, they're actually servants, they're actually slaves, they're actually being taken from their parents because you think it was hard, hard now to, to, to take children from parents, which is, is not with all these violations of the Constitution, you know, imagine just how, you know, they say you're vagrant, you're this, you're that. They're just taking people's children. And so these forced apprenticeships, this is how they're accomplished today. And um, the role of poverty is so unfair because when you look at the fact that the black community, last week we talked about inheritance and how black people you know we don't have um the type of inheritance because our 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 money our wealth was stolen and you know we worked for free and built this nation and so you know there's some slogans about how poverty is not a reason to take away your child just because you're poor that doesn't mean that you're a bad parent that doesn't mean that you're um abusing your child and it doesn't mean anything uh necessarily but you know, this is embedded in this system, and, and it goes back to when they said, you know, these poor people don't have a right
2: to to their children. That That's yeah. completely true, but we need to also take into account, when you were talking about the vagrancy laws, we have to okay. remember that many of these laws were written just for that convict leasing system. It wasn't until after the 13th Amendment was passed and after slavery was abolished and so forth that many of these vagrant um, oh, loitering awesome. and other laws came about, In especially in the South. they They were created in order to put Black people in prison so that we could be slaves again. And a lot of the laws on the books Today are being applied in the same way because only our children are going into facilities for a lot of these crimes that are not treated as crimes in in other communities. Marijuana being one of the one of the biggest ones, it's, mm. it's treated as a crime for our children and for adults. But it's not treated that way for for others help no, let let's be honest i I also was around for the crack epidemic. I was still in Chicago. I was young at the time, but I got a chance to see how it was treated. but as an adult attorney, I'm in court regularly, and I deal with people who have meth problems, and it is not treated the same. One is treated as though. It's, you know, it it's a problem, and as a society, we need to deal with this, and we need to come up with ways to help these people. I'm sorry I have to punish you even this much, but when it came down to crack, you did it, and you just need to be thrown away. Why? Our current president was, was in the lead saying that, we need to do something about these these super predators. Yeah. And so we we have to remember that when it comes to the law, it, it is so far from a, a fair application. And when we look at our children being punished, we treat it as oftentimes we treat it as though they're being punished. They are not. They are being abused with this system. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're
1: right, because the the concept that black youth uh, being incarcerated for minor misbehavior, that's a that's treated as usual. It's it's normalized, and so I think we get very desensitized um, and are sometimes very shell shocked. You know, where you have a mother you know standing in front of a judge, you know slapping her child, saying, you know I'll, I'll I'll beat him, you know, and you won't have to worry about that because let me tell you what else he may have done, you know, something, and, and you're you're not really understanding that you're sentencing your child to a lifetime, perhaps you know, incarceration, because the recidivism, once a child is going into the system for something small, then the likelihood that the child may return may have been traumatized in detention, you know, uh, wheel broken, you know, uh, who they are. And, and that's why it's so important that we, um, you know, see the men like yourself, Brother Deshaun, and the, the FOI who are in the community now who are, you know, doing programs to keep young brothers. Uh, out of out of any type of criminal behavior, such as uh, Brother Louis Ali, who has the apprenticeship program, um, you have others welding different things because this this is so important, um, as you're saying. Because just kind of running down the history, you know, we have the case of George Stinney, who in 1944 he was the 14 year old who was executed at the age of 14 and that child was executed um he's the child sometimes we see him he was sitting in the electric chair he was so small that they couldn't even i think they say they couldn't even really um hold him in the chair you know but the child the some of the facts they say he was tried 1 month after his arrest and he was executed 6 weeks after trial but then in 2014 there was a writ by his family because he had never committed the crime you know he was totally exonerated you know we we talk about the super predator with uh John DeLillo you know when you you had this um you know just over targeting this racist attack really it's it's really like a mob attack brother brother Deshaun, because when i look at michael brown and what happened to him in st louis and you know the fact that he was just shot down in the streets murdered um and, you know, this was just an attack. It was a mob attack. And then the, we saw the officer get on TV and talk about how he, you know, uh, make all these false, you know, stereotype about how he was justified and how he was fearful. But these are the same patterns that we've seen. Now we see Ahmad Aubrey is on trial. And everybody, we need to look at that. And, again, we have to look at these things because these are the same people who put on these white coats and say, now I'm your doctor. You know, okay, first I'm your police officer who's just going to shoot you and make up some lie about why it's justified. Now, you know, I'm your doctor who is um, talking about some shot being safe. You know, or or I'm this judge down in Rutherford County who, you know, and and the thing is they, 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 they think it's a joke. You know, they have very little. They lose no sleep at night over the abuse, like you said, Brother Deshaun, the kidnapping of of black youth um, because there's no accountability. You know, so um, it's something that we have to look at. We talk about the uh, brothers who were the Central Park Five, the exonerated, and they were, in 1989, they were 14 to 16 years old. They were tried and convicted, and there was no evidence. You know, all the confessions, uh, allegedly, but the only thing that, you know, got them off was that someone else did confess to the crime, (laughs) you know. And these young men were described as how they were described. And so I'm just really kind of fired up, uh, Brother Deshaun, with this issue because we have to, as, as the sister was saying, we've got to, send this message out to our people that the wealthy, they're the ones who are directing and controlling the system, the child welfare system. This was the same thing that existed in the 1800s and 1700s. And so now the wealthy are the ones who are determining what the science is. You know, they're the ones. And so this is the same trap to try to murder our our children and and to actually you know what is it sterilize them murder them, who knows we just know that this is a massive experiment, and uh, we also know that our children have been subjected to experimentation um, you know mm-hmm. there there are books that talk about how the children in these foster care systems they've been sub- the subjects of experimentation at these colleges and universities and you even hear it now on the radio, you know, do you want to participate in some trial? Um, and so, you know, just getting the word out to our people that your children are not, um, you can't trust the the people that are beckoning you to, to try to take your children, to try to talk about providing safety and even educating the children in some, some ways. So I know that I've really been kind of going on and on with this but I really wanted to um you know, just kind of get you on because the system is this is a system you work with all the time.
2: And yeah. you you and, know that and, you know Yes, sir, go ahead. Yeah, I I agree with everything you say and and right now there's an outcry for justice as it relates to the police because That's what's in front of us in terms of the visual. But the juvenile system is a closed system, and we have to understand that what's going on with our adults, with incarceration, with the courts, with the police, the exact same thing is going on with our juveniles. They do not wait until we turn 18 to do these things. The same things are going on with our children. They are not safe in this system. The truth is the only real answer is the same one Sister Ava would give, which is separation. But yes, sir. while teach. we have I'm sorry?
1: I just said teach, brother Brother Sean, yes, sir.
2: <laughs> yeah. But but while we have this system we need to hold it accountable, and we need to pay attention. We need to know when we deal with with anybody as it relates to this system, any step in the process, we need to have our eyes open. We need to approach it as though we're going into hostile territory, and we need to get people around us who are wide awake and who are – Not necessarily the most loud, boisterous person we know, but somebody who's paying attention, somebody who can help us think through the circumstances. We definitely need lawyers, but we need people around us who can help us to see the pieces that we might be missing because this is a dangerous hour, and we're talking about going into hostile, hostile territory. Where our interest is not considered, when you said they don't lose any sleep, they feel like they've done good when when we're being locked up That's oftentimes right. because, because we're often viewed as a monster. And all they're trying to do is kill the monster. That's how our children are often looked at. And we have to be the ones who care enough to try and do something about it.
1: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, and, you know, you're so right. It's my understanding that there was a Supreme court decision that, um, according to this news article, they may have even lessened the accountability that police have for illegal brutality. So it's like at every place, we're seeing that this enemy is not going to change. You know, we talk about qualified immunity, and, and that's one of the reasons why judges and police officers and probation officers and anyone in these state positions, they do a lot of what they want to do because it's very difficult to hold them accountable under the statute of qualified immunity because you have to be able to show that they acted willfully or acted just, it's an extreme case. And most of the time, you know, you got to be able to read somebody's mind to say, well, was it willful? Um, And then they're they're just going to lie and say that it wasn't. So, you know, again, like you said, you know, we talked on Saturday about um, separation, and, and it was talked about from the standpoint of whether or not that's a political agenda And so when we start talking about people who don't want to keep going to this system for all the answers or for any answers, I mean, we do put our tax dollars into the system, but uh, in terms of safety and and what's in the best interest of our children, lots of this is is, is what we're going to have to take into our own hands, such as educating our children and, you know, building communities that our children can feel safe in. Perhaps even uh, adopting, you know, even informal, you know, mentoring children in your neighborhood, or you know, everybody used to be play mama or big mama or you know, the nice person across the street that just may drop off some groceries because this is this is the mindset that we're going to have to to get to be independent thinkers um, because again, like you say, accountability of course goes both ways and. We have to hold ourselves accountable to to stop looking at a system and, and really just ignoring our children, um, Brother Deshaun, because we're down to the last 10 minutes. But a lot of this, you know, like there are two different systems, and if you could tell us uh, about that, you know, there's the delinquency system and then there's the child welfare system. And those are two different systems in the juvenile um realm um and so tonight we've been talking about delinquency where a child might be charged with some some small something that would be criminal if they were an adult um but is that something yes you know,
2: ma'am. something that you and know the juvenile court actually about deals that. with yes ma'am and the juvenile court actually deals with both um if the child is essentially effectively accused of what would be a crime for an adult or some infraction that is um, something like being a juvenile with cigarettes, something that only affects juveniles, that would be delinquent. But Mm -hmm. the state also, the court also has the ability to deal with child abuse and neglect cases. Those are the cases where, the child may go into the state's custody as, as an abused or neglected child, in which case the party who, who the court is fighting with is who the state is against is not the child, but the parent, but the effect is still the same. Mm-hmm. The child may very well end up in a system that is hostile to it. And there are times when when it's necessary for a child to to be protected. But the circumstances, what you were saying about us as a community, you know, the minister said we have to make our communities a, a safe place to live, and that's true for, for our children also. We have to make it safe for them. If we that's see fine. that the circumstances in, in your cousin's home is not safe for the child, then we have to step up and and do something to help. We have to actually be friends of one another to keep our children out of this system because the system is not set up to be our friend and it's not set up to be that loving parent. That's right. That old adage that it takes a village. If it takes all of us to come together to help a family so that the child stays out of the system, we got to do it. And otherwise, we're going to damage these children. So there there really isn't a choice. Yes, sir. You're so right. Yeah, because,
1: you know, they believe the the enemy, you know, a lot of the Caucasians in the system, they feel like the taking of the village to raise a child, they believe that they should raise our children. And through these doctrines of parents, patriarch, they want to make decisions on, you know, and control and dominate. And, you know, actually a lot of times that's not ending up. With anything but a genocidal plot, because you know children can be in both systems. they can be in the child welfare system and the delinquent system at the same time because oftentimes um, you know when we look at our own selves and making our communities decent and safe places to live, we sometimes are uh, neglecting our children. and so if you neglect your child, then that gives uh, all kinds of openings for any predator. To, to come against your child, and neglecting sometimes is even that you got to make the hard decisions, and it bothers me to hear people say, well, you know, this shot is about Tuskegee, and black people had the experience with Tuskegee, so that makes us hesitant. No, we've had a whole lifetime of 450 years of racial injustice and genocide, and so you got to. We got to step up and be brave, and not neglect getting information that will protect our children. Because a lot of times in this system, we say uh, we believe that parents should stay well informed of what's going on in your children's lives, and it, especially in their children's cases. So you know, please, mm-hmm. we're we're imploring you know all of our listeners to put the word out that people need to really. Um, not put their head in the sand and uh, just neglect their children and turn their backs on their children because that is our future. Um, And and so that's what we wanted to talk about tonight. And um, I think it's been a a very, um, you know, great kind of back and forth conversation, Brother Deshaun. You know, I know I put you on the spot. You know, usually we have maybe several lawyers, but, I wanted you to be able to share this juvenile justice um, paradigm, you know, with the listeners. So, you know, this this is what we, we were trying to do um, tonight, and I thank you so much for giving us your time um, and your excellent, excellent information. Um, so we're down to, to three minutes. And, um, you know, one of the things I, I just wanted to say, um, there's an October 15th article that, you know, it just talks about the futility, to, in my opinion, of us keep going to the government and government agencies to seek help, because this article talks about how there was a Biden administration policy that is supposed that was passed when he was elected that is going to address longstanding structural inequities and in all of this and racism in the system. And so here we are now being told by two other congresswomen, well, they're going to have to study it because the agencies don't have enough data about the programs and the people, and so they need more access to crucial demographic data, such as race, ethnicity, and all of this. Until they have those things, it's hard for them to do move forward. And these are the type of excuses that we can't any longer, you know, put our lives on. So I think, you know, we've got to make our own communities decent and safe places to live. Um, because I, I just a hilarious um response that after four hundred and fifty years or even after the last let's say six you know, since I was uh sixties and sixties, seventies, they've done so many studies. They're always studying, they study this, study that, but nothing ever comes from those studies except um the lack of accountability <laughs> as we talked about tonight. So, um well, that's it. I um thank you so much. And I want to go ahead and ask everybody, um, you know, thank you so much for listening to the Elevated Places Network presents A Time for Justice. To hear previous shows, you can log on to um, the Elevated Places, pull up a time for justice or listen to any of the myriad of shows that are on this network. I would like to thank the listeners who were called in, who called in to listen and ask that you tune in next week for more informative discussions. I would also like to remind everyone to listen to Ask Dr. Ava and her show comes on on Thursdays at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. I would like to thank my Executive producer, Sister Samaya Muhammad. I would like to thank Sister Dr. Ava Muhammad, um, who is the actual, you know, the person, the sponsor of the Elevated Places Network. I would like to thank Sister Donna Muhammad, Brother Terrence Muhammad, and once again, Brother Deshaun, I would like to thank you so much for for coming on and speaking to us, and I would definitely like to thank all of the listeners who tuned in and tune in again next week. We are so humble for your time. As-salamu alaykum.
2: Wow, alaykum so as